0: Hello and welcome to the Sins and Virtues podcast, covering everything from gratitude to gluttony and greed. I'm musician James Wilson, and in this podcast you'll hear from creative practitioners finding out what motivates them and how the seven deadly sins and seven heavenly virtues have impacted their outlook as artists. In this series, which focuses on the virtue gratitude, you'll meet academic and broadcaster, Professor Mona Siddiqui, as she sits down with four artists to discuss what gratitude means to each of them. In this latest episode, Mona speaks to Kieran Hodges, a powerhouse poet at the top of his game. Named by The Independent as one of the most exciting spoken word performers and dubbed a highlight of Guy Garvey's Meltdown Festival, he has gone on to release his debut poetry collection, Cosmo Cartography. He talks about his family's love affair with food and the pressure to perform on the page and on stage.
1: Kieran, thank you so much for being my guest.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Kieran, let's start with your early childhood and the formative influences on your life, your family and who and what influenced you.
2: Yeah, dive straight in. I love that. I was thinking about this during the week. My family would be very much kitchen people, as I say. My parents are both chefs. So the kitchen is sort of the centre of our house, really, and that ritual of, Coming together every Sunday for Sunday dinner is something that I kind of remember really fondly and remember lots of different Sundays sat around the table and just sort of chatting to each other, catching up with our week and coming together. And that kind of same communal aspect, reaching out to our uh, further relatives, our sort of more distant family, aunties and uncles, grandparents, cousins.
1: Was food a big part of your life as you were growing up?
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because like I say, my parents are chefs, so it's hard for it not to trickle down into your own subconscious or your your pre-conscious mind when food is so important to people. And yeah, it becomes a conduit there for community and for conversation and for belonging, really, in that sense.
1: When you look back on your childhood, were you grateful for for that kind of ambiance, that atmosphere that was created by food, really? Because I I personally think that unless you can cook and create family meals, you don't have to be a good cook. But in order to have that home environment, especially when children are young, you need that kitchen space, you need that gathering around something. Um, And so for me, it was a very important part of my life. And I just wondered whether you remember your family and food together in some ways
2: absolutely yeah the two are sometimes indistinguishable from each other um and it's interesting talking to my dad now he's working in kitchens and he's in his 60s and it's reinvigorated him to go back into a kitchen environment where I thought god he must just be knackered working 12 16 hour days on his feet at that age and he's so passionate about food and it's really inspiring to see that passion and now that I'm home he's always saying, oh, what are you having for tea tonight? And Because I'm vegetarian and they're not. He'll cook me something separate. And I'm like, oh, I'll just sort it myself. Don't worry. He's like, no, no, I want to cook for you. Like, it's a pleasure to cook for you. And I find that a bit boggling, really, to think you've just been doing this all week for, you know, people you don't see, people who may not be as grateful, and you still can come home and and do the same for us. It's incredible to see that. Um, I probably didn't have that language of gratitude when I was younger, but looking back... I certainly do have the gratitude for it now because, yeah, it's hard to imagine what that would feel like without it, it's hard to imagine a childhood without that food.
1: Well, I mean, you, you just said that you're back at home now and your father still wants to cook for you, and I can completely understand that. But in some sense, gratitude is a virtue by and large, but it, it's also a problematic virtue. It can also lead to feelings of indebtedness. And I wonder, as you say to your father now, look, you know, you've been cooking all week for other people. You don't have to cook for me, plus the fact that you're vegetarian and he has to cook something extra. Do you sometimes feel that that there is a little bit of indebtedness, that you have to comply because you want to make your father happy because he wants to make you happy, but at the same time, you're quite happy to do your own thing with food?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's very easy to comply because you're like, oh, okay, it takes it off my plate and I don't have to cook now. I can can go and have a shower and clean my room or, or do whatever um and i think it probably would feel a bit like um like i was snubbing him if i was like oh no i don't want to eat what you're cooking i'll cook it myself that might feel like an insult almost um but i make i make sure to do my share of the cleaning and the cleanup washing the pots and all that afterwards because the chef never cleans in this house and that's the way it should be and you're so right about gratitude being a problematic virtue and that it can bring up feelings of obligation or indebtedness absolutely and I've spoken to my dad about this so many times to be like, how, where do you pull that from? Where does this sort of seemingly boundless desire to feed people come from? And he's just so passionate about food that he doesn't it doesn't bother him. He's like, I'm happy to cook for people. It's a it's a pleasure to feed people.
1: I, I do often think, though, for many of us, including myself, that cooking is the one thing that's left that I do with my hands. So much of our, our lives now are cerebral or We we don't do things, we don't labor that much. So, cooking, especially cooking from scratch, there's a certain satisfaction, never mind it being therapeutic, that you've created something out of nothing. And I think I can understand why your father feels so much joy still.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It really is a time of disconnecting from screens, which is so pervasive, especially during the pandemic. But it was like that already. And just the idea of I can I can make something from nothing. It's almost like witchcraft in a sense of sitting around the boiling pot and stirring it. And then the joy of being able to share it with someone, especially, you know, I was living away from home for many years and I was cooking for myself a lot of the time. And that's just sustenance. That's not joy in the same Mm, sense. mm,
1: Yeah, there's a complete difference. Absolutely. And so so moving on from when did you leave um, your parents' house and where did you first move to?
2: Yeah, so I left Ireland in 2011 to study creative writing at Manchester Metropolitan Uni in Crewe. So I emigrated to the big bright lights of Crewe, uh, where I did my degree. I absolutely, you know, I loved it. I was so keen to formalise my kind of education, training and creative writing with the degree. I felt really important that I do that. I was a little bit later going to university. All my friends in Ireland had finished their degrees and I had been Doing a couple of NVQs here and there and working, and just sort of not really quite sure what I should do. So, by the time I got to university, I was dead set and there was no kind of holding me back. Probably wasn't the most studious kid in school. So, the opportunity to go back to an education setting where I could call the shots and my independence and autonomy was welcomed and my creativity was celebrated was. A really incredible and massively formative experience for me where I could play and experiment and just try stuff out. And also in a new environment where I literally didn't know a single person could almost go through like a second teenagehood.
1: That can be daunting, but also really creative um, because you're almost starting, well, you are starting a new life and you can be somebody new. Not completely different from the person who grew up in, 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 you know, in a family home in, in Ireland, but still, you can redefine yourself. You can make your mark.
2: And that was one hundred percent a big aspect of my sort of journey, uh, both through creative writing. I think I processed a lot of that through my writing, but also just as a sort of personal psychological experience was to be like, I think I need to go somewhere away where all the sort of contexts and experiences and memories and expectations of me can fall apart and I can kind of choose to pick things up or leave them where they land. So, yeah, it was definitely a sort of reconstruction.
1: And you define yourself as a poet, am I right? Yeah. What drew you to this particular art form or this particular mode of expression?
2: Yeah, I don't really, I don't know why poetry over anything else because I've written I've written short stories, I'm trying to write a play, I kind of just anything creative writing, but I think with poetry especially, they're like puzzles to me. I see the construction of a poem very much like the construction of a puzzle. The same way reading a poem can be like trying to solve a puzzle. And it's it's almost like if I can find the right words to put in the right order, the solution to the puzzle is a very specific emotional response. And that, I love that challenge of just finding the right way to say something that so specific and so nuanced you know may not be understood immediately by the reader or even by myself but in five years time ten years time something might happen and that phrase is the first thing that comes to my mind and I've had that experience of poetry before where I go oh I now know what that poet was trying to say I was I I didn't necessarily like poetry in school Uh, I I do put that down to the curriculum and perhaps teaching styles but I did love people like John Found his poetry just like alchemy and just incredibly cinematic and evocative and just really bloody clever. You know, I think the flea is just such a wonderful people sort of almost hold it in this high regard. And I'm just like, it's just like any lad in a nightclub trying to (laughs) trying to cop off with someone and he's doing it through God. And I just (laughs) think that is just the funniest, silliest thing done so beautifully. And also Quite logically, you know, he's using logic to convince someone to sleep with him. And I just think that is an absolute player move if I've ever heard it.
1: And you yourself say, I'm talking about poetry, in one of your performances, poetry is a gentle science, that writing is a maze, the whole point is to get lost. Did you ever feel lost yourself as you were trying to find your way?
2: Oh, God, yeah, yeah. That's almost half the fun. (laughs) It might not feel like fun uh, during the experience of getting lost and seeking to be lost. But um, yeah, I definitely, I think it's helped me find parts of myself and stitch them back together. Um, I love the idea of using writing for mental health and for counselling and just to have a space to talk to yourself. We, we, we are talked at, talked to, and we talk with so many different things and people constantly throughout the day, more than we even realise. And I don't think we have a space to talk to ourselves anymore um, as much as we may have had previously. And also the act of writing with your hand, I'm convinced now, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'm convinced it unlocks a, a different part of the brain than typing at a computer does. And just that stillness that you need to sit down and write something, I think, is a meditative practice and is something that... We should all be doing whether we feel like we would call ourselves a writer or not.
1: That's a really interesting point. I I would completely agree that writing with your hand, even having the right tool in your hand, whether it's a pen or a pencil, having the right desk, I mean sometimes these things can be almost excuses to not write, (laughs) but I do think it makes a difference the kind of atmosphere you create and the setting for when you actually feel, yeah I can write something really good now, everything is in place. But But the point you're making about we should all write, I mean, in some ways, that kind of emphasis on writing and speaking and and reading um, as a form of therapy or just as a form of wellness has been lost, ironically, by making this an art form. So people think, "Oh, this is just luxury; it doesn't we don't really need it." But actually, over the last eighteen months or so, more and more people have talked about the healing effect, if I can put it that way, of being in that kind of interaction whether it's poetry or writing or creative writing or even listening to people and the magic of words whether you read them or or utter them but i still feel that as a society we really don't have a sense of the purpose and power of either literature or the spoken word
2: yeah i definitely agree it's and i think that's you know part and part of capitalism a little bit not to not to be that person on that soapbox um but you know, it's commodified it and because the qualitative aspects of it or the, the nuanced rewards of sitting down to have a creative practice, whether that's for, you know, for professional purposes to pay your bills or if it's just for fun, we have lost that connection with, with that joy and we kind of almost think, well, what's the point? And I just think, gosh, if people were to have always asked that question, we would have missed out on some of the greatest pieces of art ever.
1: Now that you're back home um, again, how has that influenced and affected your writing and your thinking ability? Because being at home as an adult is very different from being at home when you're naturally just growing up.
2: Yeah, it is really interesting. And I think it's been timed quite well just in terms of the creative journey I've been on sort of since lockdown. Um, As the lockdown hit, I had been starting to recognise that I was having quite a uh, significant creative block and my response to that was just power on through do what I've always done but something else was going on that I just couldn't put break down that wall and I I recognized that I was having panic attacks when I sat down to write and this pressure to perform on the page and on a stage but the pressure to perform to be productive for myself was becoming a negative thing a really damaging negative thing so when the lockdown hit I had Called up my counsellor and I was like, "We've got something to explore. Let's go." And literally, the first session we had was on Zoom the first week of the lockdown. So it was this very quick turnaround into a forced hibernation. I re and I really valued that. I kind of said to myself, "I'm going to use this time to stay well, to stay healthy, and to make sure everyone else around me is well and healthy and support the community that I live in." At the time, I worked for an arts charity, so I felt like I could give back to people and. Their response to the pandemic was amazing. But for myself personally, I was like, I'm using this as a bit of a residency. I have work that I want to create, but I can't get there until I sort some personal stuff out to do with my relationship with creativity. Um, And that was an incredible experience to bring the reflective practice of creativity and especially creative writing into a reflective counselling space that uses language so I was doubling up on reflection and language in this space and it really felt like a sort of supercharged uh, moment for me where about three or four maybe five months it was just a constant reflection and identifying and discovery of why am I a creative person and why writing specifically I could have been food. It could have been music. My dad's also a musician. It could have been anything. Why did I pick writing so specifically?
1: And as you're speaking, I mean, I don't want to sound particularly dramatic about this, but do you think, as you're saying, your your relationship with creativity, do you think creativity, whatever kind of artist you are, can almost be a burden? That if it can't be released, it can be all-consuming?
2: 100%. Because... For many freelancers, there is an obligation that you have to be a certain amount of creative and that creativity has to then pay your bills, which is an incredibly difficult position to put yourself in, especially through a pandemic where all freelance work is essentially not happening. But also just for the personal to think, well, how do I toe the line between having fun and making money with creativity? And I know for myself... I just had to stop the voices of be productive, create something, and really go back to a, a much more deep root thing to question why was I being creative and look at the, in meditation, they often say meditating is like sitting on the side of the road and watching the cars drive by. And this process to me was like, yes, I know the cars are there, but I want to know who's driving them and what fuel they're putting in the tank. I wanted to dig down even further into the motivations of my thoughts and the, the all the cogs and wheels spinning and understand why they were spinning and what force was it that made them spin or made them stop spinning. So it felt like a really deep exploration of my relationship to creativity. And let you say, it had become a burden because I was forcing myself into a panic attack situation by telling myself after a very hard day at work in a scary, emotionally draining um, and physically draining environment, dealing with vulnerable people, talking about their experiences through the pandemic, I was then giving myself a 45 minute break max. This is how stripped I was with myself. And then going back to the computer that I'd sat in all day and had slept in that room the night before, spending about 20 hours in the one room, just like a hermit, just thinking I could just produce a full play, which I've never attempted before, just, just not managing my own expectations.
1: You might be aware that the reason I was drawn to the topic of gratitude was because of um, a project that was funded uh, by a Christian philanthropy group called the Isaka Fund. And in these last two years, apart from the academic side, we've explored artistic expressions of gratitude And I think after two, two and a half years, one of the changes I have, I think, made in my own life through thinking about gratitude is just letting things go. People who bother me, people who hurt me, people who annoy me, um, just let it go. You've got far too much to be grateful for. Let these things go. Don't let them consume you because life really is too short. And one of the interesting things that I was reading about what you've written was For me, gratitude moves away from a fear-based outlook on life, that fear can paralyze us from experiencing the full breadth of human life. Is that how you feel now when you look at your work and you try to to be creative?
2: Yeah, yeah, I try to be a bit more brave and just do it and let it be wrong. And I can fix it later, whereas the fear was stopping me from starting. I love how you phrased that and it really exposes the power of gratitude to be a real boundary and a real sort of marker for the self to protect yourself from negativity because you're almost... It's like trying to sort sand from salt, right? Sometimes we can't tell which thing is pulling out our energy or which thing is really affecting us. But when we have a gratitude practice, it's almost like casting a little circle around yourself and you can just sort out the salt from the sand and go through it in that level of detail. And we become a lot more more focused and attentive to the things that give us energy and therefore that creates a positive I think it creates a positive feedback loop for that to give you more energy and more restorative uh, time because I felt during the pandemic the things I was doing to restore myself had a diminishing law of utility and was the more I was trying to do yoga and meditate and read it was just not working anymore and I was like I'm running out of options here But also you start to see the negative influence coming from outside and you do, rather than having to forcefully push them away, you just turn away from them and they just drop like shadows behind you. And I think a lot of people would hear the phrase gratitude practice and kind of roll their eyes and think of flower power or, you know, crystal shops and things like that. But actually, it is incredibly powerful.
1: It is. I mean, at least I find this. It's a really um, effective way of self-preservation, without having to have difficult complex bad energy conversations with lots of people uh it doesn't hurt anyone but actually all you're doing is preserving a little bit of your own sanity
2: 100 100 and i think we can use gratitude to nurture new positive things um i read an amazing book by a guy called dave abrams the spell of the sensuous and it's very complex and I will not do it justice in my very brief uh, abridged uh, description of it but it's essentially the relationship between language uh, and phenomenology and experience and our relationship to nature and in that he talks about perception as a muscle and we have to strengthen our perception of the natural world in order to really appreciate it and see it and I think gratitude can almost be the training wheels for those weak muscles it can help us strengthen and see things that weren't there before you know when i think when people start a gratitude practice i have a practice where i write post-it notes once a week and put it in a jar and then on halloween every year i look through the jar that's my new year's yeah first of november i will go through them and feel the gratitude and then burn the paper and release it back out into the world I'll try and meditate on gratitude quite as often as I can if I need an extra little boost to really bring my attention to it. I think a lot of people, when they start that practice and go, well, I have nothing to be grateful for. I had a crap day a terrible day. I can't be grateful for that. And it challenges you to see the positive positive in the negative. OK, I had, a, I had an opportunity to learn there or I had an opportunity to respond differently. And even if I didn't do that, i have become aware of it so I can do it again next time or just something as simple of, I'm great. Like one of the things that was in my pot from last year was I'm grateful that I'm healthy, mm. especially with the pandemic. My partner's high risk. He lives 90 miles away from me. My family's in Ireland. I'm sort of marooned in Liverpool thinking, will I see people again? That's a very scary thought. And you just can let all that go by just being, I'm well, I am safe. And that really, that again, really helped with the, impact of lockdown and being sort of trapped in our houses for for however long it was. So yeah, it can be an incredibly powerful tool to stabilise, nurture and reset, I think.
1: I think that's a really good way of putting it. Just a final couple of questions, Kieran. Looking back at either your recent or distant past, is there any one thing which you really regret having not done or said or having said and done?
2: Yeah, I would think having this practice or a sense of this practice back then well we talked about boundaries I think that's a big theme for myself personally in the last maybe two three years is setting better boundaries and I can I can see a pattern of that happening where I didn't set boundaries I didn't speak up and now i finding it a lot more difficult to do that and speak up and push back when I need to as an adult you know, they always say you should learn to drive as soon as you can because it gets more difficult the older you get. And I'm also in that boat too, where I'm like, oh, I really need to learn to drive now. It's going to be really difficult. Yeah. So it's just some of that um, about knowing yourself and having the opportunity to know yourself and not getting lost in other people quite so often.
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a good way of putting it, not getting lost in other people because it's very easy to do. And one final question, Kieran, what's the one hope that you carry forward?
2: Yeah, that's such an excellent question, and it makes me think of lots of things. I think just to continue being creative in whatever form that comes. When I was a lot younger and starting out on my creative journey, I would seek the accolades and the things that might give me a a rung on the ladder in order to climb. And the more creatives I speak to, once they naturally create a practice or a reputation or a a market for themselves so to speak they just want to be able to create work it's not about I have to win this award or I have to be at this festival and work with this person I just want to create work that excites me and that I'm proud of and that can be interesting for people in whatever way that takes me I'm looking forward to the challenge of that and just having balance and and goodness in my life yeah
1: Kieran Hodges thank you so much for being my guest and I wish you well as you move forward. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Sins and Virtues podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, go to www.jameswilsonflutes.com or follow me on Twitter at wilsonflute. This series is supported by the Fenton Arts Trust and Help Musicians. May your day be filled with gratitude.